Hello, everybody. We are here because he has, in fact, done uh, great things. You know, I love Good Friday, Easter, and, and more than worthy of an annual focus and celebration the Lord's death and resurrection. But what I love is the power of his death and resurrection is for us every day. Every day. Every day. He died and rose from the dead that we might be transformed for uh, all of eternity. But we're jumping back now into 1 Corinthians, and we're going to end chapter 4 today. And the big idea in these first four chapters, Paul is trying to help these believers at Corinth understand. They're being more influenced by their culture than they should. The first way that that is expressed, the symptom is there's disunity among them because they're raising up human leaders, messengers, and they're trying to make them celebrities. And he's tried to pull apart for them that they're finding their identity and being connected to the more famous messenger. But they, they got the culture impacting their value system and therefore their attitudes and their behaviors more than they should. Now, he, he, he is building this ark, and there's a crescendo. And as we get to the end of chapter 4, we're going to hit the peak of this crescendo. And he is going to wrap up this admonition by being very, very direct with them. He's going to do it by getting sarcastic. There's a point to this. Now, there are little depictions of sarcasm through Scripture. I don't know of anywhere where a biblical author, for as extended a period, gets as sarcastic as he does in this first paragraph. We're going to look at two paragraphs this morning. I'm going to pull them apart. We're going to look at the first one, and then we're going to look at the second one. And it's all flowing through all four chapters here. But he's trying to drive home a point, the big idea of which is it ought to be Christ and treasuring him that is the focus and the heart of our value system. Because I wonder, if they're struggling that in, with that in Corinth, what would Paul actually write to those of us in 2021 at RCC who uh, watch TV a lot? Who are saturated with messages from the internet, from social media? We started this series by me suggesting that I think this is just as big a challenge for us today as it is in Corinth, to not embrace, to not adopt the values of our culture and have those supersede Jesus and just who he is, that he's our focus. Because I'm telling you, these, these, these messages, these values from our culture, whoa, whoa. They are omnipresent everywhere. So, as we go into the end of chapter 4, here's what Paul writes. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. 
and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Father, I pray that you would speak to us of the truth and the power of Jesus. I pray that you would enable us to see more clearly Jesus. I pray that we would hear these words of Paul and they would penetrate our minds and hearts that we might more fully experience, praise, and express Jesus. In the way we think, in our attitudes, in the way we feel, and Father, in the way we live, in the way we behave, in the way we interact with others. We ask this for our ever-deepening experience of the joy that comes with walking with you and for the good of those who are looking to us to see Jesus. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So to help them recognize the incongruity of their lives, here's the idea of that first paragraph. Paul sarcastically contrasts himself with the Corinthians. Here's who you think you are, and yet this is who I am. And there tends to be a fairly sizable gap. Now here's Paul's summary of what the Corinthians are feeling and thinking. Your life is great. You're not facing any challenges. You're not facing any difficulties. You're not facing any hardships. Huh, 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 huh. The way he summarized it in the text was, you have all you want. You are rich. You are kings. You are wise in Christ. Now, if you look at this quickly, you could think he's actually uh, praising them for being wise in Christ. But see this in the context. He's making fun of them. They aren't actually wise in Christ. The reality is they're actually promoting the wisdom of the world, but they think of themselves as being wise. Strong. Uh, 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 uh. And honored. The Corinthians' perspective is this, seems to be. Life is great. In this culture, we're successful, we're happy, we're not facing any of the challenges. Look at this. We got everything we want in the world. The people in the world think highly of us. They love us. Everything is going great. Plus, we got Jesus. Paul's trying to help them understand. Part of the reason the culture is looking so favorably at you is mm, you're not embracing the values of Jesus quite as thoroughly, as fully as you should. 
Paul's perspective. Again, the culture's values are impacting you more than you should. This is the, this is the idea he's been now trying to build for four chapters. Paul contrasts his and the apostles' life with theirs. Your life is great, and our life stinks, relatively speaking. Our life isn't that easy. People aren't thinking that highly of us. I wonder why that is. Back to the text. The red stuff is what he's saying about them. The blue stuff is what he's saying about himself. Notice the contrast. That's what he's trying to talk about. Already, you have all you want. Life is perfect. There are no challenges. Life is just grand. Already, you have become rich. You have all the resources you want to live comfortable lives in a nice area and have all this stuff. It is great. Without us, you have become kings. You're claiming to love Christ, and look at how successful you've been in the world without the influence, Paul's saying, of myself and the rest of the apostles. You guys are marvelous. If anybody deserves to be praised, it's you guys. If anybody deserves to be adored, look how far you guys have come. Then he turns the tables on them. And would that you actually did reign. You got this image of yourselves, this pompous view, this arrogant position. And would it be that you actually did reign, that you actually functionally were kings so that we might share the rule with you? You got this view of yourselves that is just unwarranted. But what if you really were in charge? That would be great for us. Y'all do see the sarcasm here. Please tell me you see the sarcasm. Verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles. He's made us and demonstrating and promoting us is actually the last of all. Like men sentenced to death. You're rich. You're kings. Everything's going great. Those of us to whom Jesus entrusted the gospel directly, by contrast, our lives are not that great as you're measuring it by the world values. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels, and to men. Those who are wise in the world think we're stupid. They think this message we preach is absurd. Verse 10. We in the world are fools for Christ's sake. Yet somehow you're being perceived as wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. 
Now, Paul's not saying here he's not strong in Christ. Remember, again, he's using the cultural measure of strength. You view yourselves as strong where we're actually weak. You are held in honor by these folks in the world. We are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. And when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. I think here again, that response is in contrast to what's going on in the Corinthians' response when they're facing those difficulties. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's how the world views us. But they're not viewing you that way. Because you're living by their values too much. You got their value system, then you got Jesus in your back pocket, and you think life is great, but he is not really the center of your lives and the drying force of your value systems and your attitudes and your behaviors. Now, notice again, because he's built this through four chapters. Here's some of the ways he has described the Corinthians to this point. Again, the expression of their haughty attitude of their cultural values. But there are divisions among you. You're raising up these folks. There's quarreling. You're celebrating messengers. Rather than lifting up Christ, you're trying to lift up people. You're looking for your identity from how other people think and being connected to these celebrities. You're impressed by lofty speech. You're not spiritual people. You're fleshly. And you're infants in Christ. You're behaving in a human way. You have spiritual work with a good chance of being burned up. You're living with this puffed up attitude, looking at the world like the people of the world. You're adopting their wisdom rather than the wisdom of Jesus. Now, folks, this is the most sarcastic paragraph in all the Bible. Why does Paul get so sarcastic? Here's what I want us, I hope, to recognize. We're not dealing with a major doctrinal issue here. These guys aren't denying the divinity of Christ and the essential nature of the sacrificial atonement of Christ. There's no critical doctrinal issue at stake here. In our culture, here's my concern. This ain't even a big deal. So people are making celebrities. So there's a little lack of division. What's the big deal? That's just so much a part of our culture that it's even in fact that the church, what's, what's the big deal if people in church aren't getting along? No significant doctrinal issue. And yet he has spent four chapters driving to this point where he gets as sarcastic as anybody in scripture, I think the question as we try to interpret that is, why would he go to that sarcasm? Now, those who've been around me probably recognize I actually like sarcasm. I actually love sarcasm. 
My parents have assured me it started very young in my life, and I'm 62, and pretty much it's continued. About a year ago, I tried to cut it back, and so far I've not been that successful. <laughs> now, I have two rules regarding sarcasm, and they really could be combined in one, but it makes it more interesting if I make two. The first is this. You can never send a message with sarcasm. Sarcasm can be terribly hurtful. It was in probably my early 20s, and I was already using it way before that, that I realized where, where, where sarcasm starts to hurt people is when they're trying to be funny and they send a message and they're intended to make a point or maybe even hurt people, but they try to frame it in a way where you try to get a laugh, and that's where the hearers can't interpret the intent of it very well. Are you trying to send me a message? Are you really trying to tear me down? Are you really trying to say something to me? Are you really trying to be funny? So I have two rules. That's the first one, with the staff and in our home as my kids grew up. If you're going to say something sarcastic, you cannot be sending a message with it. So when the staff or my kids ought to get a little concerned about what I'm going to say, I talk to them like this. I get real quiet, and I get real gentle when I've got a message to send. Because I don't want there to be any confusion, and I love sarcasm. Try to use it only with people who understand its intent. But at the office and at home, if there's a message to be sent by me, sarcasm isn't near. So if sarcasm is taking place, everybody can relax. And getting a laugh, then, can be the only objective. That's the rule in the office. That's the rule in our home. If you're being sarcastic, the only intent. Now, my kids growing up, they broke that rule. I've had staff a few times that have felt like to me they were maybe sending a message. I would wait till the discussion was over, and then I'd talk with them one-on-one. -on -one. Remember this rule? Paul breaks my rule. Paul's not abiding by my rule. Now, am I just trying to justify sarcasm today? If it works, I won't be opposed to that, but that's not my objective. There are some people, I get it, that just don't like sarcasm. When I'm with those folks, I try I try not to be sarcastic. It's just, for all those ideas that you hear come out of my mouth, you ought to get a picture of the ones in my head that don't come out. <laughs> they are just filled. It's just the way my mind works. Paul breaks my rule. And he sends a message with sarcasm. So why? Why is he so sarcastic? Because he's concerned for these folks. And they're not recognizing and seeing the inconsistency of their life with what a Christ treasurer ought to look like. 
They're not seeing it. So he's trying to make it very measurable, very concrete by contrasting them with himself. And it's a big deal. That our treasuring Christ, that our embracing the death and resurrection of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit comes into us and transforms us for all eternity and continues to produce ongoing spiritual transformation is a big stinking deal. And Paul's afraid the Corinthians aren't really getting that. He's not having to correct their doctrine about who Christ is, how we get saved. He's trying to help them understand that when you fall in love with Christ, it changes the way you live. And if it's not changing the way we live, we ought to be concerned. That's the first paragraph. Here's the second paragraph. No surprise. He gets really sarcastic. And then he tells them this. You better change the way you're living. You better live in a way that more fully expresses who Jesus is. And then he's going to get downright specific. He's told us earlier several times, don't honor me, don't lift me up. You know what he's going to tell those folks now and us? Imitate me. Don't worship me. Don't adore me. But I'm actually living this life out in a way that's very different than the way you're living it out. You need to change the way you're living out this faith so it actually looks like the way I live. The second paragraph now. After that paragraph of sarcasm. How many of you like sarcasm generally speaking? How many of you have been hurt by sarcasm? I'm going to encourage you to live by my rules. Live by my rules. Never send a message with sarcasm. Just don't do it in our culture. Only for a laugh. Now, sometimes I think I'm funny and other people don't think I'm funny. <laughs> they just have minimal appreciation for the depth and the magnitude and the beauty of sarcasm. But it's something that I will work on. I do get lots of people don't like it at all. And that's cool. I am really not trying to get you all to embrace sarcasm. That is not my objective at all. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, Paul goes but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Here's the solution. Don't live like this. Actually live like I live. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 
Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now we're going to go on next week, and he's going to deal with another expression of their immaturity and their having adopted the cultural values. In fact, next week, Paul's going to say, hey, this is beyond even the cultural values. You, you, one of you is living in a way that not even the pagans would live this way. But here's where he, he ends this crescendo. So Notice the way he starts, though. Paul is admonishing, not shaming. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Any of us who have been a parent, we know the challenge with disciplining our kids and trying to set them on the right directions where it feels like it can rob them of their self-worth, right? I don't know any of you, when you feel corrected, sometimes you deal with people that, oh, you know they're going to feel like a failure and it's going to go to the heart of who they are. So sometimes you're really hesitant to correct or admonish because you're just afraid these people are going to take it so personally. By Paul setting it up. I am correcting you. <laughs> but don't you be questioning your value to Paul to God. Don't you be questioning your value to me. Don't be questioning your worth. But yes, you do need to change. And I think there's all of us on both sides of this thing. I mean, you've dealt with folks. Uh, I got two dogs. One dog, I can discipline him, and he looks at you like, what? I got another dog, I just look at him sideways, and he, it, it's always that way, just timid, right? So with our kids, sometimes we've had, this is about correction, not trying to defeat but people, but actually encourage them. And for all of us who are in that, or you've gotten on either side of this, you know the challenge of correcting somebody with hopefully not deflating their, their, their worth or their values or their, their, their image of themselves. Uh, did I finish that verse? Uh, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. And Paul loves them deeply, right? He's framing that sarcasm because I'm convinced when that church read that last paragraph, they went, oh my, wow, wow. Why does he share this with them? Because he loves them. And do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I care about you. I want you to grow. All I have in your, is your best interest in mind. You've had countless guides, and I think there's a good chance that this actually references back in the original context uh, slaves that would have watched over children, been responsible for taking them to school, taking them back from school, maybe feeding, taking some of the care. And the basic, the basic picture of those slaves is that they weren't always that gracious and kind. They didn't bring a parental perspective to it. They did their job. And Paul's contrasting himself with a lot of those spiritual influences that are around them. You got a lot of people telling you how to live. You're my children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have any fathers. You really have one. He's saying to them, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You actually got Jesus from me. Don't ever worship me. Don't ever praise me. Don't ever adore me. But you do understand I ought to have more influence in your life than these other folks. As you're tempted to listen to these other folks... Listen to me. 
because I care about you. Beyond that, his teaching is consistent. I'm convinced the Corinthians could have read particularly that paragraph right before and gone, if they'd ever heard about the letter to the Philippians or the church in in Thessalonica, he didn't talk like that to those other churches. He has raised the standard for us. He's expecting things of us. He never talks to those other churches like he talks to us. I think there's a good reason he didn't talk to those other churches like he talks to them. They weren't quite as messed up. And so you'll notice, we'll pick it up at verse 17. That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. This is his way of saying, I'm not giving you anything that I haven't given any other believer with whom I've interacted or any other church. Paul here in Corinthians is just responding to specific challenges that this church family has. Now, not listening to Paul is not good. Paul is so articulate. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, because Timothy actually picked it up, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Now, some is arrogant as though I were not coming to you, as though my influence really doesn't matter. Some are going to go on, and they are arrogant. They just are not going to listen to me, and as long as I'm not there, they're not going to pay attention to my words. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not to talk of those arrogant people, but their power. Really lofty speech, void of real significance and power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Notice how he ends this section before we move on. Four chapters, four chapters. Don't be so influenced by the culture. My summary. Four chapters. So when I do get there, would you like me to bring a rod? Or would you like me to be gentle? It's a rhetorical question. And he doesn't mean a rod literally. But he is telling them, listen to me. This is a big deal. And imitating Paul manifests the power of God because Paul manifests the power of God. Verse 19, but I will come to you if the Lord wills, and I will, find, uh, I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk. And here in this context, it's those empty words with lofty speech and all that adoring, uh, 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 but in power. If you go back to the beginning of the book, in the first two chapters, he mentions power four times. Here's where the power is associated. Focusing accurately on Jesus and not caring about anything else. That's where the power is found. So how is God's power manifest in us? I think we too could look at Paul. And if we look just at the first part of this book, he's promoting Jesus' 
alone. His focus is on Jesus. He's not caring about impressing others. He's told us he really doesn't care what other people say and how they judge him. They don't care. His identity is not tied up in what other people think of him. His identity is tied up in this, and this pretty much exclusively. His relationship with God, that's what drives it. He's not using lofty language again to impress others. He was willing to be despised. He boasts, he's got one place and one place only to truly boast. I don't think he's saying it's inappropriate to talk about our grandkids or to share with loved ones or friends what success we've had at work. But deep down in the core of who he is, he boasts in Christ and in Christ alone, that is it. His identity is in Jesus. He's building unity with all believers. He's serving in brothers and sisters who need to grow. I don't know if you've ever dealt with somebody in any situation at work, at home, but you were trying to stretch whatever they were thinking, whatever they were feeling, and they just didn't get it very quickly. Do some of you know that feeling where you're trying to encourage, train somebody, equip somebody, and they're a little slow on the uptake? Anybody know that feeling? How many of you, I'd love to see hands, have ever been frustrated with that? What I love about the Apostle Paul, you think he was frustrated with the Corinthians, folks? <laughs> Unmistakably, he has made clear that they are not living up to what he, they, he, in Paul's mind, they should understand. And you know what does Paul do? In grace, he just keeps going and keeps loving them. Even when they're frustrating him, he's not quitting on them. And willing to endure persecution, advancing only Jesus. I hope you see a theme here, so focused on Christ. So why were the Corinthians and why are we so influenced by our culture? So I'm going to summarize, and it's an oversimplistic perspective, but I actually do believe it to be accurate. Why does our culture uh, uh, so influence us? We just find it more interesting, more fascinating, and oftentimes more appealing than Jesus. You know what you can see on the internet now on YouTube? Man, there's some interesting stuff. There is some fascinating stuff out there. What's going on in our world? There is great, great, interesting stuff. There's a little golf tournament going on this weekend that I will watch every minute of the telecast today. There's some great stuff out there. Why is this such a temptation? Why? Because there's some stuff that we just, quite frankly, I think get more fascinated and more interested in than Jesus. So what's the solution? You guys, I hope hear from us at RCC there's really only one solution, and you hear it every week. Focus on Jesus. Think about him. Read about him in Scripture, other places. Study about him. Hang with others who want to talk about him. Jesus is more fascinating and more interesting and more appealing than anything else out there by far. If we're not experiencing it, it's not because he's not that awe-inspiring. We're getting distracted by things of less value that are less meaningful. 
Paul started this book with a quick summary of who we are and what we are in him. And I'm going to encourage you this week, every morning, to read these nine verses that begin this chapter. Because he framed this lens through which he wants us to see the entire book. He gives us this lens of who we are in Christ, fairly concise, at least in, in comparison or contrast with his other epistles. But he lays it out there. This Jesus is good. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosophanes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Here he means to those saved who are experiencing ongoing transformation. Their life has been for all eternity altered. But you got a young kid in the masters right now that's in second place. He's only four strokes off. I'm going to tell you, this is fascinating. He's 24 years old. I'd never heard of him before the masters. And now forever, he will be a celebrity in our culture. Tell me that's not interesting. I understand some of you are not tempted. May the Lord reveal the shallowness of your worldview. <laughs> to the church of God that is in Christ Jesus, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Transformed from object, objects of wrath into those that God sees as righteous because Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to us. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, we are part of a big family. Grace to you and peace from, our, from God, the guy who ought to damn us, who is now our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Our ability to understand this, our ability to get it, our ability to grow, ultimately all comes from Jesus. He's working in our lives now, and he wants to give us more grace going forward. Not only what he's given us, but even for the future. He's, he's, he's working for our joy in every context, in every moment of every day. But this kid, he hits a really good iron. <laughs> Both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I give my thanks, God, always, uh, uh, always for you because of the grace that God was giving you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him. We have absolutely right now everything we need to face anything in this life. He has not withheld one thing. In all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, for the Corinthians that you actually are trusting Christ, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's essentially what our life is now. Jesus is coming back, and it's going to be great. No more of the problems we have now who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. We will stand before the almighty, holy God and be declared guiltless. How many of you still sin? May I see the hands? How good is this saving grace of Jesus?
How good. God is faithful by whom you were called. He is doing all that we need for his glory and for our good, and he will complete it. By whom you were called again, God's work. Thank you, Lord. Into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We commune with Jesus. He rose from the dead, and so we rise from the dead and are joined with him. I look at where our culture is going. You can see it as scary or you can see it as an opportunity. Where our culture is going, folks, the pace at which it is moving, in my estimation, away from the, the basic Judeo-Christian ethic at a speed that surprises me. Cancel culture, guys. Folks are going to want to cancel our message. Increasingly. Because there are certain ways they want society to live that we're going to say is not in God's glory or for anybody's real joy. No, we will not yield. Always important to know who Christ is. Always important to be focused on him to know the scriptures. Always, always, always. As we move forward, what I see happening... It is absolutely critical for us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. The challenges slash opportunities are going to, in my mind, increase. And to stand lovingly for Jesus, those who are doing it in our culture, we're going to have opportunities. That's going to be more obvious than it's been. As our culture continues, it appears to me, to move away from what we would say values that really reflect Christ. Are we at RCC going to be afraid? Heck no! Not in the least! Why would we be afraid given what Paul's told us in these first nine verses of 1 Corinthians? No fear. Opportunity. But these cultural values... Can you feel it impacting our youth? Can you feel it impacting the church? Mm. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thanks for giving us, Jesus. Thanks for moving in our lives. We want to be salt and light in this culture. We want to be embedded in this culture. We want to live in this culture fearlessly. But all of us folks want to, all of us folks here, Father, want us to want to have a clear view of Jesus, a deeper faith, a richer faith, more conviction. We want to experience more of the power of Jesus. And we want to more fully display that to our loved ones, to our folks we work with, to our neighbors, to our fellow church family members. May we see Jesus more and more clearly. May we be more and more fascinated and, and awed by Jesus. May his love saturate our minds and our hearts increasingly, Father. But in this, as Paul is unmistakably clear, even in this, we need your help and your grace.
So pour out your spirit increasingly in our midst, Father. Baptize us with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit that we might live for Jesus and him alone.